Alright, magandang hapon. You guys are starting on time. <laughs> that was wonderful, excellent. Um, if you have a Bible or an electronic device that you want to read your Bible on, if you would pull that up, please. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 11 and 12 tonight. So we have been looking at the life of Moses over the past couple of weeks, beginning with Moses' birth and God's sovereign care for him as a child and bringing him into Pharaoh's house. And then last week, his calling, how God initiated to Moses when Moses was not looking for God and said, you're going to be, I'm going to use you to do great things for my people. And in both cases, we saw that the hero of the story was not Moses, right? It was God. In fact, God works often in spite of Moses. Uh, And we see that more true in our passage tonight than anywhere thus far. In fact, we're really not going to talk much about Moses tonight. (laughs) So we're going to talk about God. Because God is the one who initiates, orchestrates, and acts to deliver his people. So, to bring you up to where we are in our text tonight, God has just decimated Egypt with nine powerful plagues. But there's one final plague that remains. And it's in this plague that we learn a bedrock principle to strengthen our faith. It's a principle about God's covenant with his people. Okay, so we're going to look at Exodus 11. I'm not sure, it may not be on the screen, so you can just listen or read along uh, in your copy of God's Word. Starting in verse 4. Moses is speaking here with Pharaoh. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on this throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and and as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay, now skip down to chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. 
Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Let's pray together as we... Look into God's Word. Father, we thank You for this glorious and beautiful and fearful text that shows us something about Your covenant with us, something about what is required for You to bless us. We pray that You would speak to our hearts and teach us more about the Gospel in this Old Testament story this evening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how can you be sure that things will go well for you? You know, this is a question that we consciously or subconsciously ask ourselves every day of our lives. How can I know that I and those I love will be secure? What can we count on for safety? Now, Hollywood has figured this out, right? Um... They make lots of money on movies, blockbuster movies, about who will keep us safe, okay? So if you're a Marvel fan, right, the Avengers, right? They come to the rescue, Captain America, Iron Man, uh, the Incredible Hulk sometimes. Uh, If you're a DC fan, right, then uh, maybe it's the Justice League, okay? They're the ones that are going to, you know, save modern-day civilization, uh, personally, uh, I prefer this group, okay? I'll take Jack-Jack over Incredible Hulk any day, right? Uh, but that's, they're all playing on that same question, that same innate fear that we have. What do I look to for safety? How can I be sure that my future is secure? Now, confessionally, we know the right answer to that question, okay? We... If you've grown up in church, and then the kids can probably give the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the answer to every right, question uh, whenever your teacher asks. Jesus. Jesus is the, is the one who's going to keep us secure. We know that, but functionally, we often put our faith and confidence in other things. Maybe it's your education, Okay. Uh, you, you went to great schools like the University of the Philippines or Ateneo de Manila or University of Santo Tomas or La Salle or some other good school 
And it's like, okay, I, I, I've proven myself, and I can rest secure in that. Or maybe you have advocates, right? You have friends in high places. Maybe you think, well, I didn't go to any of those schools, but I know people who did, right? <laughs> I have friends in high places, and I know that I can look to them when things get difficult. Or maybe you just look to your own effort. Think, you know what, I can figure this out. Uh, I, all I have to do is put my head down, work hard, and, and I can make it. Well, as we've seen in the life of Moses, Moses had all of these things, right? He was raised with the best education in the world at that time. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. He had the, the greatest advocate in the world at that time. He was Pharaoh's own son. And yet, none of those things could deliver Moses and God's people from their bondage in Egypt. What our passage impresses on us tonight is that the one true certainty that things will ultimately go well for you is God's covenant. So, this is the question I want us to consider tonight, okay? What difference does the covenant make in your life? And if you're wondering what the covenant is, don't worry. We're going to talk about that. That's what the sermon's about tonight. But what difference does it make in your life? What place does it hold in your heart? How do you turn to the covenant, or do you turn to the covenant, when you're in in a situation that seems hopeless, and helpless. How does the covenant help you there? How would your life be different, or would it be different, if you didn't know God's covenant and you weren't a part of God's covenant community? That's what I want us to consider tonight. Because this is the point of our text. God's covenant is our only certainty of God's blessing. God's covenant is our only certainty of God's blessing. And the degree to which we know and put our confidence in This covenant is the degree to which we'll experience joy and peace in our life. And in our passage, we find three aspects of what the covenant is and why it's an assurance of God's blessing to us. Okay, so just to give you a little preview, this is what we're going to look at tonight. The covenant is a declaration of sovereignty, it's a distinction by sign, and it's a deliverance by substitute. Okay, so first, a declaration of sovereignty. Now, you may have, may have noticed that when we read our text, the word covenant never actually occurred. Okay? But if we look a little earlier in the Exodus account, before God calls Moses, we see that the entire Exodus event, all ten plagues, the, the parting of the Red Sea to bring God's people out of Egypt, it was all motivated by God's covenant. So look with me at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. God remembered his covenant. That is what motivated God to take action to bring his people out of Egypt. So what is this covenant with Abraham? 
And what did it have to do with the Exodus? Well, to do that, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 15. So God had already called Abraham to follow him. He said, leave your country, uh, leave your people, go to the place I'm going to show you, I'm going to bless you. And uh, through you, all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. And then again in Genesis 15, God reaffirms this promise to Abraham. And he says, if you look at all the stars in the sky, that's what your descendants are going to be like. And Abraham, being childless, he believes, but he says, God, how can I know? But how can I know? And so God directs Abraham to take five animals and to cut them in two, okay, from head to tail, and to lay them opposite one another. It would have looked something like this. It would have been a very bloody uh, exercise. Five animals split in two, with the blood probably running toward the center of those animals. Now, to us, we're like, what, what is going on here? I thought the Bible was weird, and this confirms it, right? Uh, it's incredibly odd to us, but Abraham knew exactly what was going on. It was a covenant ceremony. You see, in the ancient Near East, when, when two people made a significant covenant with one another, they would set up this arrangement. They would, they would divide animals in two, set them apart, and then the two parties making the covenant with one another, they would walk between the pieces of those animals. And they would say this as they did, May this be done to me, if I don't keep this covenant. Okay? The penalty for breaking the covenant was death. Okay? It was a serious, sober thing. And so Abraham knows what God is doing. He's saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. And so God then says to Abraham in this covenant ceremony, know for certain, remember Abraham asked the question, how can I know? Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, two chapters later... In, in Genesis 17, God, it, it, he expands on what he's already told Abraham here. And he, he tells them more about what this covenant is going to be. And he says, Abraham, this is not just, I'm not only making this covenant with you, but also with all of your descendants. Okay, chapter 17, I will establish, this is God speaking to, to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So what is God's covenant? God's covenant is sovereignly declaring to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bless you forever. 
This is the essence of the covenant. And this is what unites the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. This thread, it runs through every, every section of the Bible. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bless you forever. I will be your God. I will protect you. I will be the one who takes care of you. I will be the one who provides for you. I will be the one whom you worship. You will be my people. You will be the ones who look to me, trust in me, who walk in my ways. And then I will bless you forever. You will experience my goodness, my grace, and my presence for all eternity. And that is exactly what we see in the verses that we read in, earlier in Exodus 2. Did you see that? Notice what the, the echoes of the covenant. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Literally, the word took notice is new. It, it, the text just says, and God knew. What difference does the covenant make in your life. It, it means this. It means that no matter what you're going through, okay, no, matter how, no matter how good things are, no matter how difficult, no matter how hopeless, that God hears, God sees, and God knows. He hears you. He sees you. And He knows. He knows, he knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you need, and he knows what he will do to act on your behalf, just like he did with the Israelites. You see, the covenant assures us of God's blessing because it is his sovereign declaration that I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bless you forever, which brings us to our next point. And that is uh, a distinction by sign. Those, those who enjoy the covenant are distinguished by a sign. God's covenant demonstrates that he does not relate to every person in exactly the same way. He makes a distinction between his people and everyone else. Now, how does that sound to you? Does that seem right? God relates differently to different people? Well, before we answer, let's consider the same question ourselves, okay? Do you relate the same way to every person in your life? Do you relate to your coworker the same way you relate to your spouse if you're married, right? What's the difference? Well, you have a covenant relationship with one and not with the other. You see, a covenant relationship changes the way you relate. And here in our text, we see God making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. We read it earlier, but let's just look at it again. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I'm going into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. But against any of the sons of Israel, not a dog will even bark whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So, what is this distinction? What does it mean that God makes a distinction between 
his people, and everyone else. Let's say first what it does not mean. Okay? It does not mean that Israel is more valuable. Okay? Every human being is made in God's image and has equal value in his eyes. Okay? No matter uh, where you're from, does it matter uh, what you, if you're rich or you're poor or you're black or you're white or you're red or you're green, does it matter how smart you are? It doesn't matter what you can contribute to society. If you're made in God's image, you have equal value in his eyes, and all of us are. So it doesn't mean that Israel was more valuable than Egypt. It also doesn't mean that Israel was more righteous than Egypt. In fact, God goes on in Deuteronomy, and he says very explicitly, it is not because of your righteousness that I'm bringing you into the promised land. In fact, it's in spite of your unrighteousness, because you're stiff-necked and stubborn. Okay, you kind of wonder, like, it's very obvious that God didn't choose them because they were good people to choose, okay? Uh, and so it doesn't mean that Israel's more valuable, Israel's more righteous. What it does mean is that God has committed himself, he's entered into a covenant relationship with his people, and he's bound himself to do good to them. Okay? to seek their good uh, for his glory and for their joy. So, thinking about this maybe in our context a little bit. When I married Carrie, I made a covenant promise to her, okay, to love her, to seek her good, and we said to one another, for richer or poor, uh, in sickness and in health, right, as long as we both shall live. Okay? Whether that's in Augusta, Georgia, or Manila, Philippines, or Timbuktu. Okay? Wherever we go, uh, whatever we have or don't have, okay? however we feel, we're committing ourselves to one another. I will love you. I will seek your good as long as you live. Okay? That was this vow that we made to one another. And because of that, our relationship with one another is different from every relationship that we have because we've entered into a covenant. And so, and so it is with God. God's covenant relationship with his people distinguishes them from every other person on the face of the earth. Now, to remind God's people of that distinction, he gives us signs. Now, we also use signs to distinguish our relationship sometime, right? Uh, some of the signs that we use to distinguish ourselves might be this, right? So you put that on your apparel if you're a Golden State fan, or maybe you're a Cavs fan, but probably not anymore because LeBron went to the Lakers. So, so your signs change, right? Right. <laughs> uh, now, when we wear these signs, we are declaring that we have a special relationship with these people, right? You, you get together with other Golden State fans and watch a game, then, you know, you kind of have this bond with one another. And, in effect, we're saying, I like this group, or I'm in this group, or maybe even, I believe in this group, 
Okay, I believe in them. I believe they're going somewhere. They're, they're doing something. But biblical signs are different. They're not primarily a sign of our faith, but they're a sign of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to be our God, to make us his people, and to bless us forever. So look with me at uh, verse 13. This is what uh, Moses said. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall, befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, notice the language here. When the Israelites applied the blood to the doorposts and, and to the lentil of their homes, who was the sign for? Was it for the Egyptians? So that the Egyptians could see their faith? Maybe. Was it for God to know which houses belonged to the Israelites so that he didn't go into the wrong one? Unlikely. What's the text say? The text says it was for you. It's a sign for you, for the Israelites, for the covenant community, to remind them that God distinguishes them from Egypt because he's made a covenant with them. Listen to how one commentator says uh, what he says about this. All the plagues that God sent upon the nation of Egypt served to distinguish between Israel and Egypt. The judgment of God was not meant for his people, but it is particularly in this last plague that we see God commanding a demonstrative act on Israel's part to demarcate itself from the Egyptians. Israel was told to use the blood of the Lamb as a physical and visible sign of its distinction from the Egyptians. So what does this mean for us today? Okay, well, how does this apply to, uh, to our lives? Covenant signs are God's gift to his people. They're reminders of his covenant promise to us. And they strengthen our faith. And they cause us to grow in grace. Okay, in the Old Testament, God gave his people two primary signs. A one-time sign of circumcision, which represented God's cutting away uh, the impurity from their hearts so that they could love and obey him all their lives. And an ongoing sign, the Passover meal, which is what our text is about. And it was an annual exercise, an annual sign, which reminded them of God's faithfulness in delivering his people from the bondage of Egypt. Now, for us, in the New Testament, God has also given us signs, and we call them sacraments. The sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The sacrament of baptism is a, once, a one-time sign. Okay? It represents God's promise to cleanse us, to pour out his spirit on us, and to, to give us new life, to raise us from death to life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this about baptism. It says that baptism is a sign and seal that we are joined to Christ, that we receive the benefits of the covenant of grace, and that we are engaged to be the Lord's. Okay, so going back to just the example of my marriage, when, when Carrie and I 
took our vows, we gave each other a son. And this son is not a, it's not a son of my faith. It's a son of Carrie's promise. This ring is, uh, actually not this one. I lost that one, but this is a new one. So this, uh, I found it later, but this is still the old one. So anyway, this is a son. She gave this to me on our wedding day. And she said, this is a son of my commitment to you. Okay? This is a sign of my commitment to you. And it's also a seal of ownership. It says, I'm taken, right? Not that anybody would be interested in the first place. But it's a a sign of ownership, okay? I belong to her. When I put the ring on her finger, she belongs to me. It's a sign of my promise, and it's a sign of, of ownership. That's what baptism is. It's a sign of God's promise to cleanse us, to give us new life. And it's a seal of his ownership, that we belong to him. And God also gives us the Lord's Supper, which is an ongoing sign that we celebrate once a month here in Breadcom. It's a reminder of God's promise to deliver us from our sin by the blood of another. And when we take that covenant meal, when we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we are declaring proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Shorter Catechism again, it says that those who receive the Lord's Supper in faith become spiritually stronger and grow in grace. Okay? It's not just because we're hungry, right? Okay? We uh, have salo salo. Uh, That's when we, you know, eat for hunger. Um, It's like, again, going back to uh, our marriage, it's like an anniversary meal. Where you, you, we sit down and we consider uh, our marriage. We consider our love for one another. We, we're reminded of our vows. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of what it took to redeem us. And God's love for us demonstrated in that meal. So, let's pause for just a moment and consider. How seriously do you take the signs of the covenant? I think sometimes in our evangelical world, we can not take them seriously enough. Have you been baptized? Either as a child of a believing household under the covenant, or as an adult believer, maybe saved out of a believing household. Have you been marked with that seal of God's ownership on you? It doesn't save you. But it does strengthen you. It encourages your faith. Do you prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper and soberly meditate on the price that was paid for your redemption? When we we celebrate that every first Sunday of the month, do you soberly reflect on what what I'm doing as I take this bread, Jesus' body offered for me, Jesus' blood shed for me, the blood of the new covenant, These are gifts from God to strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith, not in our ability to keep the covenant, but in God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to us. So that brings us to our final point. The covenant assures us of God's blessing because it's a declaration of his sovereignty. It's a distinction by sign, but it's also a deliverance by substitute. Now, I want us to take a moment 
and with full imagination and sober reflection, consider the horror of the tenth plague. Okay? The death of the firstborn. This is the way the Exodus account gives it to us. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Consider the horror of that night. You went to bed... And when you woke up, there was somebody, if you're an Egyptian, there's someone dead in your house. Every single household in, among the Egyptians, where there was not the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, there was someone dead. Now, why? Why would God resort to such a horrible plague in bringing his people out of Egypt? Why didn't he just kill Pharaoh? Why didn't he just kill Pharaoh's servants? Why children? It's not an easy or comfortable answer. And it brings us face to face with the awesome reality of God's justice. A few things. First, let's be clear. It wasn't just children that died in the plague. It was every eldest child, regardless of how old they were. Grandfathers, fathers, mothers, uncles... Ants, every firstborn, dead. Second, it is possible that some of the Egyptians learned of the Passover, learned of the Passover instructions, and and carried them out in faith and would have been delivered. We do know that there were Egyptians that came out of Egypt with the Israelites. But third and most important, God was completely just in the tenth plague because death is the penalty for covenant unfaithfulness. You see, death is not natural. Death is not a natural part of this world. It was not a part of God's good, original creation. And it will not be a part of God's redeemed creation, His renewed creation, when Jesus comes back and and puts all things right. Death, every death, is penalty. It is a penalty for rebelling against God and breaking His covenant. Do you remember the covenant ceremony that we looked at earlier that God made with Abraham? The penalty for covenant unfaithfulness was death, just like the animals. Now, we ask ourselves, yeah, but I thought that was God's covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. What about all the other people that, what about How does that apply to everybody else? And yes, the covenant we looked at earlier was a covenant God made with Abraham, but there was another covenant that God made with our first parents in the Garden of Eden. God made a covenant there. He placed them in the Garden, and He made a covenant to give them life if they obeyed. If they obeyed. If they trusted and obeyed His one command... Don't try to be your own God by taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat from it, you will die. Death 
was the penalty for breaking the covenant. And our first parents, rebelling against God's command, broke God's covenant and brought death on themselves, on their descendants, including the Egyptians, and including us. You see, God would have been just to kill all of the Egyptians because all of them were covenant breakers. So why just the firstborn? Because God was teaching His people something about His special covenant with Abraham. He was teaching them about His grace, grace that would come through a substitute. Okay? Do you realize that it was not just the Egyptian homes that experienced death that night? It was the Israelite homes as well. The difference was that in the homes of the Israelites, it wasn't the firstborn who died. It was a lamb that died in his place. And our text tells us that it wasn't just any lamb. It was a one-year-old, mature male lamb that was unblemished, okay, without defect. The Hebrew word there for unblemished is tamim. In other places, it's translated blameless, okay, because sometimes it's used to refer to people, blameless. And the Israelites were to take this lamb, and they were to take it into their home for four days, and on the fourth day, slaughter it. And then they were to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost and over the lentil so that when the Lord moved throughout the land of Egypt to strike down all of the firstborn, he would pass over that house. Why? Because the judgment of death had already come to that house. But it didn't fall on the firstborn. It fell on the lamb. One commentator said it this way, Something was required to die on the night of the Passover. Death and the shedding of blood were required. The options for the Israelites were their firstborn sons or the blood of the lamb. But the fact that blood was required was not up for debate. By requiring a substituted sacrifice for their firstborn, God was teaching his people the concept of substitutionary atonement. You see, here is the dilemma of our existence. How can God maintain his integrity, his holiness, his justice, and still bless us, disobedient, rebellious, covenant breakers? That is the dilemma of every person's existence. How can God be just? How can he maintain his integrity and and still bless us when we don't deserve it? when we're covenant breakers, when we deserve death? The answer is found in God's covenant of grace with Abraham. Remember the covenant ceremony that we looked at just a a little bit ago? The the pieces of the animals, right? Cut in two, laid opposite one another, blood flowing to the middle. Abraham is there. He's, He's cut the animals in two, and he's waiting to walk through the pieces. He's waiting to to make this covenant that he knows if he breaks means death. And then something very unexpected happens. And we see it in Genesis 15. Now when the sun was going down, 
a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, a terror of great darkness fell upon him. Darkness always represents judgment. It came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. You see, what happened there was that Abraham never passed through the pieces. Abraham never made the walk. It's called the walk of death. He never walked between the pieces. Why? Because like our first parents in the garden, Abraham couldn't keep the covenant requirements. Abraham couldn't do it. And so God did it instead. And in passing through the pieces alone, God was in effect saying, I will bear the responsibility for your inability to keep this covenant. And I will bless you, Abraham, and your descendants, even if it kills me. That's what God did in Genesis 15 when he made that covenant with Abraham. How can God bless you when you are unfaithful to him? The answer is a substitute. A substitute. And that is exactly what the Passover event was all about. God was blessing his people, bringing them out of their bondage, by providing a substitute, a spotless lamb who would die in their place, who would die in the place of the firstborn when God brought judgment on Egypt. That's what the Passover is about. But the Passover lamb was only a shadow of a much greater deliverance. The Passover points us to something far greater, far better, far more terrible, if you will, that we see in the New Testament. Because centuries later, another great and dreadful darkness would fall over the land. And God's judgment would again be poured out. And another spotless lamb would be slaughtered. But this lamb would also be a firstborn. God's firstborn. His one and only son. And he would be torn apart on the cross with nails, with thorns, with a spear, so that he could be a substitute for all of Abraham's descendants who by faith have that blood smeared upon them so that when the eternal judgment of God comes, it can pass over you because it has already fallen on him. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. God's covenant commitment to bring deliverance to you and to me and to all of Abraham's descendants by faith through a substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in conclusion, I want us to consider uh, a few things. What are your present circumstances? What is it that you're going through Right now, what are you anxious about? What do you feel overwhelmed by? How can you have peace and confidence that God will be with you in the midst of these things? It's only this. It's by meditating on, treasuring, and trusting in God's covenant of grace. 
God's covenant of grace secured for you by Jesus. Okay? Your certainty of his blessing. Because in the covenant of grace, we have a declaration of God's sovereignty. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you forever. We have a distinction by sign. He puts this, he gives us signs and seals of, of this redemption. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which remind us that we belong to him. We're not our own anymore. We belong to him. And deliverance by substitute, as the judgment of God on our sin passes over you who put your faith in that Passover lamb who is sacrificed for us, Jesus, the Lamb of God. And when you take that into your life, it changes you. You cannot be the same person anymore. God has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will change you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you, and I will enable you to live a life that brings honor and glory to me and that brings blessing to the world. That's the hope that we have. So we can say when trouble comes, uh, in the words of Bobby McFerrin, that great theologian, don't worry, be happy, okay? Not because you have some naive notion okay, that, that, that things are just going to work out well for you, but because you can trust in God's bedrock covenant promise. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bless you forever in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reality of that covenant promise. Thank you for the price that was paid for us. Thank you for the picture of the gospel we see here in Exodus as the Passover lamb was slain so that the judgment of God could pass over your people because it fell on that lamb. And we thank you that the judgment of God, as we embrace and hold on to and cling to Jesus, our Passover lamb, that judgment passes over us because it fell on him. I pray that we would meditate on, consider the great blessing of the covenant that you have made with us to be our God, to make us your people, and to bless us forever. Pray that this week and every week we would consider the great strength and confidence that that gives us as we look to you, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen.